Okay, so I need to begin this evening with uh, some damage control. Damage control. Um, I have talked to you before about my best friend Matt. Uh, He and his wife Cassandra um, recently adopted. I shared that story with you. Well, earlier today, I was on the phone with my other best friend, whose name is also Matt. Uh, He and I also have been best friends since college. He was my roommate for most of college. Um, My son is actually named after him. And so I have these two friendships that are extremely close. I refer to both of them as my best friend. Well, he sends me this video. He texts me, um, and it's, he, he's, he's on his phone, and he's looking at his computer, and it's a clip of one of my sermons, okay? And it's a sermon clip of me talking about my best friend, Matt. And so he turns the phone to himself, and he's like, you're talking about me in your sermon. And then he points the camera back, and I mention his wife, Cassandra, clearly I'm talk, talking about the other Matt, and he turns the phone back to himself, and he's like, what? So he calls me, and he's like, dude, what the heck, man? I thought I was your best friend. I'm like, you are my best friend. He's like, you only have one best friend, Matt. Say something nice about me in one of your sermons. So, Matt, this is for you. Matt Clark, specifically. I love you, and you are my best friend. All right? Now that that is out of the way, let's turn our attention to history. Anybody like history? How about war history, military history, okay? Yeah. Well, there are a few moments in military history that compare to the sheer embarrassment of the Battle of Karan Sebesh. Um, And it isn't because of the number of soldiers that were killed in this particular battle. There are many other battles throughout history that have caused a greater loss of life. It wasn't because of how quickly the battle ended. Many other battles have ended faster. It wasn't because of being outmatched or outsmarted by the enemy, and uh, you'll see why uh, as we go on. Nearly every other battle in history has featured more of being outsmarted or outmatched by the enemy. And it wasn't about the fact that the battle was lost, it was about how the battle was lost. From 1787 to 1791, the Turkish Ottoman Empire was at war with the Habsburg Empire in what is now Austria. And the Turks, the Ottomans, had been at that point on a nearly unstoppable conquest to overtake as much land as possible. And so the Austrian side assembled to put a stop to the loss. So this Habsburg Empire, this Austrian Empire, was made up of Austrians, Germans, French, Serbs, Czechs, Croatians, and Polish, all together uh, in one coalition. Now, this coalition was together more based on the common enemy, the Turks, than on a commonality between the seven of them. So this army really was kind of set up to fail from the very beginning. From the very start, uh, it was, uh, was set up to fail. Poor leadership, poor communication were standard feature. Um, A language barrier also prevented um, a lot of things from uh, going smoothly. Um, Just for a point of reference and for convenience, um, for the rest of this story, I'll just refer to this coalition as the Austrians and the Ottomans as the Turks. Okay, so in uh, September of 1788, the Austrian army assembled itself in the city of Karinsebesh. This is along the banks of the Danube River. This was a key strategic uh, uh, location, and the Austrians wanted to control it. They wanted to control the Danube. So they set up camp there, and they wait for the arrival of the Turks. They brace themselves for battle. Estimates from historians say that there were somewhere around 100,000 Austrian soldiers assembled there. On the night of September 17th, a group of Austrian scouts crossed over to uh, the other side of the Danube to patrol uh, to spot when the oncoming Turks would be approaching. As this group patrolled, they did not find any Turks. They did find, however, a 
traveling group of gypsies. And this uh, particular traveling group of gypsies offered to sell for a very good price to these soldiers barrels of schnapps. And so they graciously accepted the offer of the gypsies. And so began a night of heavy drinking. Before long, a second group of Austrian infantrymen show up. They are also scouting. They arrive on the scene. Seeing the barrels of alcohol and wanting to join in on the revelry themselves, they ask the first group to pour them some drinks. The first group, however, wanted nothing to do with sharing their stash that they bought for themselves, and so they refused. And so these two groups of Austrian infantry soldiers began fighting each other. Like many bar fights before and since, it started out with words, and then fists started to fly, and then eventually shots fired. Well, on the other side of the river... Across from them, the rest of the Austrian army was waiting on high alert, expecting the oncoming Turks. Hearing gunfire being exchanged on the other side of the river, they immediately came to the most sensible conclusion. The Turks had arrived, and the battle had begun. And this is happening in the middle of the night. Mind you, so there are Austrians who are yelling at their fellow compatriots, waking them up out of a dead sleep, screaming, Turks, Turks, chaos ensues. Now, by this time, the bar fight has broken up and they can all hear commotion on the other side of the river. They can hear gunfire. And so they rush back to the other side of the river to assist the rest of the army. The rest of the army, however, seeing this group of soldiers rushing toward them in the dark, believed them to be the charging Turks. And so they open fire. The drunken idiots fire back thinking their camp is being overrun and Turks are shooting at them. Now, realizing what was going on, there there were a few German commanders who started yelling in German, Halt! Halt! But, as we talked about before, there are seven different nationalities that are represented here. And um, so in the commotion and the chaos, them speaking in German didn't exactly translate well to the other six nations that didn't speak German. And because of this language barrier and all of the chaos, a bunch of people thought that they actually were yelling, Allah! Allah! Which would be what the Muslim Turks would have been yelling. And so one Austrian commander uh, ordered that heavy artillery be pulled out and they start firing at every shadow in the dark. By the end of this evening, estimates say about 10,000 Austrian soldiers are either killed or wounded and the army hastily retreats. Two days later, the Turks show up. They had prepared for a brutal fight. Armed to the teeth, they arrive, and all they find is a bunch of dead Austrians laying on the ground in a completely open and vulnerable city of Karensebisch that is theirs for the taking. It was, perhaps, the easiest victory in the history of war. Because the real enemy didn't even have to do anything. The army of the Austrians was too busy fighting itself to need any outside help of destruction. This Austrian coalition suffered from disunity from poor organization, from terrible communication, loose affiliation. 
They didn't really see themselves as being a part of each other as a brotherhood. They just happened to be aligned in the same war with some of the same interest. Each of the subgroups represented had their own agendas, had their own plans, their own mission. They were joined together only in name, not in mission, not in vision, not in values, not in affection for one another. And so, although no one expected that they would turn on each other so violently, given the right impetus, they imploded. Now, it would be short-sighted if we did what one astute social commentator recommended, and we just blame it on the alcohol. It was more than that. Given their social recipe, they were bound to fail. So too is the modern church. Most of us would agree that we have a common enemy, the power of darkness, Satan and his evil empire. And we agree that we should assemble together in an effort to defeat that enemy, to usher in the reign of Christ. But we are far too similar to the Habsburg Empire. Aligned with each other based on a few common goals, but entirely lacking in brotherly affection and unity. And all it takes is an election to spark a friendly fire fight. Go onto Facebook for two and a half seconds and scroll through your timeline. You will find it filled with caricatures and mic drop memes and all-out war waging in the comments. Now, of course, some of what we see being posted are, are things posted by people who are outside the church, and that doesn't concern me. What concerns me are the things that I see on my timeline posted by Christians. 2 Timothy 2 verse 24 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to speak with gentleness and respect. Colossians 4 verses 5 and 6 commands that our speech always be gracious. Instead, I see Christians angrily typing out their political commentary, lobbing grenades at the other side, and using terms loosely like Dumbocrats or Demoncrats or libtards. Very gracious indeed. I see competing posts growing in vitriol and in volume saying, you cannot possibly be a Christian if you vote Democrat versus, no, you cannot possibly be a follower of Jesus and vote for someone who is as vile and immoral as Donald Trump. You can only be a Christian if you vote Republican. No, you can only be a Christian if you vote Democrat. And if you think any different from me, you must not know Jesus. There is a real enemy, you know. Someone, someone whose goal is to divide the church against itself. To keep people in the darkness of sin. To make sure that the light of the gospel does not shine in the world. But take a mixture of selfishness, of lack of unity, completely wrong goals and wrong perspective. Throw in the chaos that has been 2020. The commotion of a tense election and the conflation of Christianity and patriotism. And what we have is a spiritual karansebish on our hands. 
Christians screaming in panic, calling their brothers and sisters the enemy and opening fire on each other without pausing to consider what on earth they are doing. And the enemy laughs. He rolls in and sees the carnage. And he gets an easy victory. Well, I say, not in this church. Not here. Not with you. Not with me. See, whatever the rest of the church-going people in America are doing, we control what the after-church does. And we will not fight against the wrong enemy. We will stand united in Jesus in spite of our lesser differences. So, turn in your Bibles this evening to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we will be looking at verses 1 through 16. As always, if you do not have a copy of the Word, it will be behind me on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I could just stop right there. (laughs) End of sermon. Mic drop, Apostle Paul. Paul speaks with such emphatic charge. With words that are pregnant with passion. Laboring toward a common goal. Unity in Jesus. Today is the fourth in our series, One God Under Nation. 
Thus far, we have covered a number of important ideas, a number of important truths. The first being that our hope is not in a president, our hope is in a king. Then, that our allegiance is to a kingdom, not to a country. That we fight for change from the heart outward rather than the hands inward. Next week, we'll talk about how we participate in democracy, not try to build a theocracy. And then we'll end the series with the truth that we are guided by prayer, not by panic. And so tonight, we talk about the fact that we fight against the enemy of the people, not against people as our enemy. Now, as you know, I've been big on disclaimers this series. I don't want those to be forgotten, but I also don't want to belabor them. If you have missed any of the previous messages in the series, I encourage you to go back and hear those things in detail. Very shortly here, let me reiterate, I am probably going to say things that offend someone. So, in the grace and love of Jesus, I say, get over it. I'm not purposely meaning to offend anyone. However, the gospel is offensive. I will not tell you who to vote for. Don't ask me who I'm voting for. And I don't hate America. But I am upset with the church. And so today I want to speak with authority as well as as grace. To be stern, but to be kind. So please take what I say with patience As I know that I too am flawed, let us receive together what God is speaking to us right now in this political moment through the Apostle Paul. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Unity for the kingdom trumps all other pursuits. Unity for the kingdom trumps all other pursuits. Paul is writing this literally from prison. There in verse 1, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. The book of Ephesians is one of the epistles known as the prison epistles. Literally, the apostle Paul is sitting in a Roman jail cell. He is in that jail cell because he has been spending all of his energy going all out for the kingdom. Putting his allegiance to Jesus over everything else. He's sitting in that jail cell because of the sacrifices he has made for the kingdom of God. He has come to a place where he no longer works for himself. He says, the kingdom of God is the most important thing in my life. And because of the stances that he was taking for the kingdom in public, it got him thrown in jail. Among a lot of other things, okay? There's a list elsewhere where he goes over all of the things that he endures. The floggings, the beatings, the imprisonments, being shipwrecked twice, okay? Two times shipwrecked. That's like being in a plane crash on two occasions. Don't get on another boat, Paul. But he's been going through all of this stuff because of the importance of the allegiance to the kingdom of God. So he's, he's writing this from a jail cell. And, and, and he's looking at all of the infighting and the backbiting. And he's saying to the church, are you kidding me? He looks at the, at the conflict that's going on between fellow believers in Jesus. And he's like, I as a prisoner urge you, okay? You cannot be more clear than this. He's saying, yeah, from jail, guys, listen to me. Are you nuts? I urge you. I beg you. I implore you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If I was there, I would shake you, but I can't because I'm in jail. From the very same jail cell, a short time later, Paul would write these words in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if you have any of that, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in accordance with one another and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. What he is saying, quite simply, is that our unity in Christ is everything. It's everything. It is of utmost importance. Nothing comes before it. It goes above everything. There is no allegiance to any person, any party, any politician, any idea or ideology, any group, any team, any pursuit that should ever come before our allegiance to Jesus and, by extension, to his body. If there is anything, anything more important to us than that, it is an idol, And our priorities are dead wrong. An idol literally is anything that you put in the place of God. That blank could be filled with a myriad of things, depending on who you are. If there is anything in your life that comes before your allegiance to Jesus, it doesn't belong there. And for far too many Christians, far too many, what is in that blank is a political party. Republican, Democrat, conservative, evangelical, liberal, whatever it is, wherever you are, and I'm not telling you where to be, what group to align yourself with, none of my business. What I am saying is, if it is anything above allegiance to Jesus, that is idolatry, and our priorities are in the wrong place. Because when we do that, when we put something above him, it is only a matter of time before the trickle-down effect gets into every other area of life and we start attacking anybody who is not in our camp. In the darkness, in the chaos, we start seeing moving shadows and we don't even take the time to consider who those people might be. We just start firing. And casualties Pile up. Jesus himself in John 13, 35 said this. By this, people will know that you are my disciples. By this. Not how smart you are. Not what political party you're aligned with. Not whether you're conservative. Not whether you're liberal. Not who you vote for. By this, people will know that you're my disciples. This. If you love one another. So simple, yet so ignored. (laughs) So ignored. Because what we see is not, well, if you're a Christian, you'll love. What we see is, well, if you're a Christian, you'll vote this. If you're a Christian, you won't vote that. If you claim to follow Jesus, you'll think exactly the same as me. What is the world seeing when they look at us? Do they see us loving one another? Do they see us treating each other and them with respect? Does the the world see unity? Does the world see us placing Jesus above everything? Does the world see from us that our main priority is the kingdom? Or do they see that our main priority is making America great somehow? What do they see from us? They see us attacking. They see Karen Shebesh. They're they're seeing us conflating Christianity with party politics. They're seeing the word evangelical come to define a voting block instead of defining a lifestyle that means sharing the gospel with other people. They're seeing posts on our timelines like this. You don't have to raise your hand here, but maybe you've seen a post like this. If you support such and such, Remove yourself from my friends list. You guys seen those? See them all the time. If you support, then there's 
something there, fill in the blank. If you support Trump, Biden, you know, uh, Republican, Democrat, this issue, that issue. If you support this, take yourself off my friends list right now. Let's, let's translate that. Translation, I will only be friends with people who think just like me. I will only be friends with people who support what I support. Is that how Christians are called to act? No. Quite simply, no. We are called to be peacemakers, not bridge breakers. Did you know, did you know that 70%, 70% of Americans say that they do not have any close friends who vote differently from them? 70% of Americans say they do not have any close friends who vote differently from them. Now match that with another statistic. 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. Anybody see a problem there? It's a huge, huge problem. Let me repeat something that I, that I quoted a few weeks ago. This is a quote by D.A. Carson. Uh, a theologian, he said that ideally the church isn't composed of natural friends, but rather natural enemies. He says this, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Our calling is to be a part of a band of natural enemies. People who, if we didn't have Jesus, we wouldn't like each other. Loving one another for the sake of our common unity in Jesus. That's what we have been called to. Think about here for a moment the disciples of Jesus. Jesus chose a small group of people. To follow after him. He called these disciples. And let me tell you what. They were the most eclectic group of dum-dums. That you could possibly throw together in a room. And among them were people who were absolutely enemies. Take for example. Matthew the tax collector. And Simon the zealot. Okay, we know that in this culture, the Jews were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish culture wanted nothing more than to be free from Roman oppression. But that meant that some people were more hated than others. Those people were the tax collectors. Because the tax collectors were Jewish traitors. They were people who said, well, if you can't beat them, might as well join them. And so these tax collectors were Jewish men who began working for the Roman Empire to rob their countrymen. And so the rest of the Jews looked at tax collectors as being the worst people possible. They are sellouts working for the oppressive empire. Okay, so you got Matthew, the tax collector. On the other hand, you have Simon, the zealot. The zealots were people who took the very opposite approach from Matthew, who did not say, if you can't beat them, join them. They said, we're going to do everything we possibly can to beat them, all right? We're the militia. We're going to rise up. We are Antifa, and we're going after the Romans. And so they armed themselves to the teeth and would take any opportunity to start a battle. Jesus calls both of them, okay? And he puts them in the same group of 12, Let's not miss how different these people are. Okay, this, this would be like Jesus calling his disciples and saying, I want Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi joined together. And how much do you want to bet? I, I, I don't have biblical evidence for this, but it would not surprise me at all that whenever the disciples were on a road trip, Jesus made Matthew and Simon room together. 
Can you imagine? They're going off. They're doing their missions. And Jesus says, Matthew, Simon, you guys in that tent. And they're looking at each other like, what? Him? No way. He works for the Romans. I will never be with him. And yet, what do we find? These natural enemies, men who would have fought wars against each other, men who left to their own devices would have hated one another. And I can only imagine, (laughs) during the time that they all spent together, the arguments that they probably got in, and Jesus having to break the two up and be like, guys, peace, be still. (laughs) Jesus, you said that to a storm. I'm saying it to you. Peace, be still, and also get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Natural enemies united in Jesus together. Working together toward the kingdom of God. Changing the world. Because they took what was most important and put it above the things that were less important. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot no longer saw themselves as such. They became Matthew, follower of Jesus, Simon, follower of Jesus. Let's do this together. And they changed the world. So if Matthew and Simon can be in the same small group, don't tell me that you can't lovingly embrace a Democrat. Don't tell me that you can't lovingly embrace a Republican, someone who is on the other side, whatever side you are on. If you can't come into church and love deeply, the battle of Karin Sebish is waging in your own heart. The enemy doesn't even need to attack. You're doing all of the attacking for him. Hear me clearly. Don't ever put politics in front of Jesus. Because if you do, the casualties of human life and feelings will start piling up around you. Point number two. We need to make our egos bow down to Jesus. We need to make our egos bow down to Jesus. I confess that as I was typing out my notes today, and I wrote, we need to make our egos bow down. I accidentally put another G in my notes. And it says, make our egos bow down to Jesus. And that is not what I'm trying to communicate about ego waffles. But maybe even your egos need to bow down to Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3 once more with me. He says, with all humility gentleness, with with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, not begrudgingly, not, not begrudgingly, not, okay, if I have to be friends with them, I guess I will. Eager. The spirit is one of eagerness. I can't wait to put Christ first. I can't wait to love my brothers and sisters more than I love myself. One of the greatest things that is missing right now in the church is humility. Humility. We, we are so violently devoted to our positions that anyone, anyone, regardless of who they are, a Christian or not, anyone who opposes us is not only an enemy of mine, but is also an enemy of God. We're so convinced by the rightness of our words that we've ceased even listening to the other side. And even in the times that we are right, we're not treating our fellow man with love. We're treating them like an opponent to be dehumanized and belittled. Lord God, forgive us. 
Forgive us for acting like that instead of being gospel ambassadors. Let me, let me, let me just emphasize one more time. I am purposely not taking any political side as I stand up here. So, as I speak to people who are on various parts of the political and philosophical and ideological spectrum, guess what? Politically, you may be right. Okay? You might be correct. Someone who's listening to me right now, here or online or on the podcast, you may be totally correct in your political opinion. All right? In, in believing that the others are totally wrong, in the, in the person that they're voting for, they might be totally wrong, and you might be totally right. Guess what? I don't care, okay? I do not care that you are right and they are wrong. Because even if you are completely and totally right, it doesn't mean that your responsibility to love your neighbor is any less. Regardless of how right you are, your responsibility to love neighbor remains the same. Take a look with me for a moment at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Romans 9 I'm sorry, Romans 12, 9 through 21. Once again, the words will be behind me on the screen. This is again the Apostle Paul speaking. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another. Outdo, make it a competition. Okay, if you're going to be competing, outdo one another in showing honor. I'm going to outdo you in showing honor. You're going to show honor to me? I'm going to show even more honor to you. (laughs) Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't lack zeal. I'm not telling you to not care. I'm not telling you to just sit back and I don't want you to be passionate. I want you to just be a wallflower whenever it says anything and just fade into the background. No, he says, don't lack in zeal. Be fervent. But let that fervency serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Um... Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. But he said, but, but they did, but, but they, but, but I, no. Bless those who curse you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly. That means don't act like you're better than somebody else. Don't be uppity. Don't be bougie. Associate with those who are lowly. I'm so glad that I'm entertaining our children. (laughs) Never, he says, never be wise in your own sight. Man. If that doesn't hit us between the eyes, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you have any decision to make in the matter, if you have any power in the matter, if you have anything to say, if you have anything to do, if you have any power in the situation, if it is possible, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves 
but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, I feel like there's little that I could add to the Apostle Paul here. Again, Paul with a barrage of truth. We are called to be humble, loving, gracious, outdoing one another in showing honor. Is that how you post on Facebook? Or are you just looking for a mic drop moment? How badly do you want to be the guy that just owned that guy? Or do you want to be the one to sow seeds of grace? Do you care about winning arguments? Or do you care most about winning souls? Winning political battles? Or fighting against the true enemy who's trying to keep people in the dark? Is that what you care about winning most of all? It leads us to point number three. A lack of humble unity creates a barrier to the true mission. The true mission. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, look at verses 11 through 12. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. That is my job. That's my job. To equip you saints for the work of ministry. That's why I said at the beginning of this series, I'm not going to tell you where to place your vote. I'm not going to tell you where to place your ballot. I am going to tell you where to place your heart. I am going to tell you where to place your priorities. I am going to tell you where to place your allegiance and your energy in service, your time, your talents, and your treasures. And that is right here for the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. We exist as a body. We gather together to equip you to live out the gospel every single day, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to be his love in the world, in your classroom with your classmates, in your dorm, with your roommates, in your social circles, with your friends, in your cubicle, with the people that you work with, in the grocery store, with the strangers that you encounter, to live out the gospel every day in your unique corner of the world that only you inhabit the way that you do. Live it there. That's what you're called to. That's why we gather, to equip you for that, not so that you can be a political pundit owning everyone on Facebook. Recently, um, J.D. Greer, who's the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said this. He said, Some of you care more about who your neighbors vote for than where they're spending eternity. Some of the people in the church care more about who their neighbors are voting for than where they are spending eternity. That is a crime. It's a shame. It is sinful. It is the opposite of honoring God. It is pure evil. That is not why we exist. The reason why we exist is for an eternal purpose. The, the, the political parties that we're arguing about, the, the people that are going to inhabit the White House next, will be there for four years. At the most, eight. And then you know what happens? Somebody else. And yet we're spending all of this energy on stuff that doesn't matter. I remember back to my years as a youth pastor. Um, I, at times, was not the most gracious youth pastor because 
I was the youth pastor that would not mince words. And uh, when, for example, someone would come to me and ask me for relationship advice, every time, literally every time, what should I do, Sway? I would go, break up. Break up. And they'd be like, what? Break up. What are you telling me to break up? Because you're not going to marry that person. How do you know? I just know. Break up. Eventually, they stopped asking me for advice, okay? Because they started calling me match breaker, all right? Because literally, all I would say is, just break up. You're 14. You can't marry them. You have no business dating. Break up. In a similar way, I would tell them, because they're spending all this time trying to be liked, trying to be popular, trying to gain social clout. And I'd be like, those people don't care about you. And when you graduate, you're going to talk to like maybe one of them every six years. Raise your hand if you talk to more than three people from high school. Okay? Sort of. Most of us knew hundreds of people in high school, okay? And you're trying to climb the social ladder that as soon as you walk across the stage completely collapses and you look back and go, why did I waste all my time on so much crap that doesn't matter? That's exactly what's happening in the church. We're wasting our time on crap that doesn't matter. It's going to be over in four years and and down the line, we're not even going to care about anyway. What do we exist for? The mission the mission. We gather here together as diverse people who care more about Jesus than anything else. Because if we lose sight of that, we will become a church that is empty of real meaning and purpose. In a piece for the New York Times, political scientist Michelle Morgales notes that churches used to be places where people of diverse political opinions integrated and learned how to have civil, charitable conversations in political discourse. And here's what she says. But when politics affects whether and where Americans go to church, even our houses of worship become political echo chambers. Not here. Not in this church. We control what the after church does. We make those decisions. And so if we together decide that we exist to advance the kingdom of God and push forward the gospel and shine the light of the gospel in the dark to love our neighbors, to meet their spiritual and physical needs, to celebrate the already of the kingdom and work toward the not yet, then we exist for the right purpose. That is what we do. We exist to fight the real enemy. And Paul mentions him in just two chapters after where we are. In Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Equipping ourselves so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle from prison He's writing, I urge you to be unified. I urge you to to outdo one another in honor. I urge you to love, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why we fight. That's who we fight. We fight. Not each other. Not each other. Okay? The enemy. Because if we are not careful to fight the real enemy, the trap that we fall into is laid out in verse 14 of our chapter 4. Where he says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We'll be so easily fooled. Can I, can I just throw out something here for free? All right? This is, this is free. This is, this is a free tidbit. All right? Can we be a little bit more discerning in the stuff that we post? Please? 
Can we stop spreading conspiracy theories that have no backing whatsoever? Can, can we actually Google the information that's on the meme before we click share? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times a church person will post something and I'm like, did you even look it up? It's not true. But we're so quick to just latch onto something that, uh, that, that confirms a bias that we don't even research something. Can we, can we just, can we do better? Can we commit to that? Can we, can we do better? All right, this is, this is when you nod and say, yes, we're, we're going to do better. I will research the meme, okay? Thank you. I don't want us to be people who are tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and deceit. I don't want us to be children. Children. Which is, coincidentally, the first word that came to mind when I was watching the first presidential debate. It's like two children screaming at each other. But then I thought, well, sounds like the rest of us. Like a bunch of kids. But not in this church. Verses 15 and 16. Rather, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let us do everything in our power to build up the church in love, not to be a part of the problem. Whether or not the spiritual battle that is waged by the afterchurch, turns into a battle of Karan Sebesh is up to me and up to you. So, let's do what our Notre Dame football team does. Let's huddle up, put our hand in the middle, and all say, count on me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak truth from your word. God, I pray that the authority of the Spirit will convict us in the places that we need conviction, will encourage us in the places that we need encouragement, will point out the places where we have been guilty of not working for unity, places where we have been guilty of putting something else over you. Lord, I pray that you would call us to repentance. God, I pray for the after church, this body, that we would be the ones to set the example, that we would be the ones to be unified in Jesus, regardless of where we're from or what we're like or or where we're aligned politically. Let us be joined in Jesus, building each other up in love and in unity. Lord, I pray against the friendly fire. I pray against the friendly fire from this church. That instead we would seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Let us have that spirit of eagerness. Eagerness to show love. And Lord, I pray that we would experience in you a deep friendship with each other. That because of our unity in in, in Christ, that we would experience in this body a deep familial bond. That we would love each other. And that together, we would participate in the gospel mission to see this community changed by the power of the Spirit. God, I pray that if there is any person under the sound of my voice, who has never come to a place of submitting themselves to you, surrendering, Lord, let tonight be that night. Let tonight be the night that that person says, I'm ready to give you control of my life because I want to be a part of something so much bigger than just me. I want to be a part of this kingdom. I want to serve this king I want to experience this family. Let that take place. 
God, as we sing this final song in worship, I pray that you would work on our hearts, that you would call each of us to the truth in the unique ways that we need to be called. And may your presence be a sweet balm on the wounds of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship.